Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Like I said, at communion, we are starting a new sermon series on the book of Mark. And uh, Mark is a short gospel, 16 chapters long. It is a neglected gospel. It started early in its history, uh, partly because uh, Mark, all of its, or about 92% of the contents of Mark are also in Matthew. And a good chunk of Mark is also in Luke. And Luke adds stuff, and Matthew adds stuff. And so most early commentators on the Bible, most of the church fathers, most of the early writers about the scriptures quoted Mark, or excuse me, quoted Matthew or Luke before they did Mark. In fact, there's, there's half as many quotes of Mark in the early reflections of the church father than there are of Matthew. In fact, the earliest commentary, the earliest book we have where somebody decided, hey, Mark's got some good stuff and I'm going to write a commentary about it. The earliest commentary we have on the book of Mark is the 7th century. It wasn't for 600 years that somebody decided this is a book worth our time to reflect on and think about. And even in modern day scholarship, New Testament scholarship, Mark has been, for the most part, uh, ignored. Passed over. And there's some reasons for that. Uh, If you read the book of Mark, and I'd encourage you maybe for the next few weeks up until Easter, because our last sermon on Easter Sunday will be on the book of Mark. Um, It's an eight-week series. I encourage you to have your your devotional time, your quiet time, your Bible reading time. Spend some time in the book of Mark for the next few weeks. Uh, If you wanted to read, you know, uh, two chapters a week, that'd get you done. Uh, ready for Easter. Uh, but it's, if you sit down and you read this book, it's fast-paced. Mark doesn't concern himself much with Jesus' teachings. He left out the Sermon on the Mount, which takes three chapters in Matthew. He leaves out a lot of teaching of Jesus. He's far more concerned with the actions of Jesus with what Jesus does. He has this fascination for this word, and you're a good American, you'll probably like this word, because, you know, hurry, hurry, Omaha. (laughs) He uses this word immediately. Immediately. He uses it 42 times in his gospel. And it's not used much else in in the New Testament. So Americans, if you like to get things done and done quickly, marks your book immediately. Mark keeps it moving. It's like an action movie. Mark is an interesting, fascinating book. And the more I've studied it the last few weeks, the more I've come to be thrilled out of my mind that I decided we're going to walk through the book of Mark a bit. It's an interesting book. I was up till 1230 last night uh, reading, just chasing down more ideas about this book. And it is just a rich book. It was probably written in about the mid-60s, not 1960s, but 0060. And it was written probably to uh, Gentiles. 
people who weren't Jewish. And the reason scholars think that is because each time he comes to a Jewish phrase or an Aramaic phrase, he explains it to his audience like they don't know what he's talking about. And an audience that wouldn't know what he's talking about would be an audience that's Greek or Roman. They don't have the background of the Hebrews. And so he most likely wrote it to Gentile believers. And he probably wrote it in the mid-60s, which is what at the height of Emperor Nero's persecution of the church. And so what motivated Mark was probably the fact that some of the eyewitnesses were dying. They were being killed by Nero. And Mark thought, we got to get this on paper or papyri or animal hide or whatever he used. We got to get this captured. You know, when your grandparent is getting older and you want to capture some of those stories, when your parent is getting older and you want to capture some of those stories. Now, we have tons of advantages. We have computers. We have audio. We have video. Mark spent every dime he had and went out and bought a scroll. And he had to be very selective about the content he put on this scroll. Because he only had such a particular length of scroll. He couldn't just hit return and give himself more space virtually in the cloud on his computer. He had this scroll. That's probably why it's the length it is. 16 chapters, 661 verses. That's probably why the content that he picks, he doesn't talk about Jesus' birth. He doesn't talk about his childhood. He just gets her going. That's probably why immediately, immediately, immediately. Oh my gosh, look, I'm getting to the end. Immediately, immediately. Oh my, immediately, immediately. The first eight chapters are dedicated to Jesus' teaching. Three years. The last eight chapters, one week. And how Jesus died. And Mark's gospel is a, is a form of literature that is very common in the ancient world. It's an ancient biography. In ancient biographies, we found other biographies of other ancient famous people. And you can compare them and you can see that Marx is like a biography of a philosopher, a great man. And there were biographies. There were biographies of, of generals and warriors and emperors. And then there were biographies of philosophers and wisdom guys. And Jesus, his kind of overlaps a little bit, but it's far more in the biography of an ancient wisdom guy. Now, what's the difference? Well, the ancient biographies of, of emperors and generals were far more chronological. This happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and 17 such and such, and 18 such and such. I mean, it feels more like what we like to read as, as moderns. Now, what date was that? And when did that happen? And the reason we're, we, we think that way is because the schools taught us to think that way because they had to have something to test us on, Right? What is the date of this beginning of the American Civil War? I mean, you know, you need to have dates and stuff. The ancient people didn't think like that. And a general or an emperor, theirs was very chronological. But a philosopher's biography is more free-flowing. It's more like me, abstract. It was like, oh, let's grab this idea. It was more thematically based. 
So here's these themes and here's these themes and here's these themes. And they're not worried about, oh, this theme happened three years after this theme. Let's just throw these together because it's a theme. And so that's Mark's structure on the book. He, he has taken themes and he's put them together in different ways. And they are a big part of the argument that Mark is making as to who Jesus is. Another thing that ancient biographies were really concerned about was how people died. And that's why half of, of John's book, actually a third of John's book, of Mark's book, who are we talking about? A third of his book is about Jesus' final week on earth and his death. And the ancient people were really concerned about this because if you could die well, then you might be worth following. If you could face death well, then you might be a good general, a good emperor, a good wise guy. But if you were mamby-pamby, scared out of your mind, didn't know what to do, running, cowardice, didn't impress ancient people. And so a big part of Mark's argument is Jesus' death for who he is. We'll get into that in a few weeks. Who's Mark? He's not one of the disciples. He's not in those lists. Who is this guy? Well, Mark was probably related to Barnabas, who was a traveling companion of Paul in the book of Acts. He went by the name of John Mark. And all the scholars agree that his writing was most likely Peter's reminiscing on Christ. That the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, is actually Peter's thoughts, Peter's words. And it's interesting that he would write it when he did, because not long after it got written down, Peter was executed by Nero. In fact, early on, it was called the gospel of Peter. I mean, that's how strongly the church associated it with Peter. And if you look at any disciples list in the New Testament, Peter's always first. Now, I'm not getting weird and Catholic on you. I'm just letting you know. Every list, Peter is first. Even amongst the three, Peter, James, and John, you never read John, James, Peter, or James, John, Peter. You always read Peter, James, and John. Always. Peter was the primary disciple, numero uno. And he was really good at sticking his foot in his mouth. And so most scholars agree that this is Peter's gospel. These are Peter's words written down by Mark. Now, there's been arguments as to how this thing's organized. And I'm going to try to convince you that I think Mark is alluding to the Old Testament a whole lot in this gospel But it's allusion more than it is quotation. In fact, compared to the book of Matthew, compared to the book of Luke, even compared to the book of John, he hardly ever quotes the Old Testament. But I want to convince you in the next eight weeks that the Old Testament radically shapes this gospel, specifically Isaiah chapters 40 through 55 shape this gospel. Now to start making that case, let's read some of Mark chapter 1, shall we? Words will be on the screen. 
But for those of you going for an A today and brought your Bibles, I'm just kidding. We don't hand out grades yet. Mark chapter 1. Some of you are nervous. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 and following. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Quick note here. When we read the Bible, and if you've spent any time reading the Bible, do you know what you're actually doing? You're just reminding yourself of stuff you've already read. Don't do that. Read the Bible. Look for new things. Experience it fresh. Because none of you were were surprised with what I just read, were you? But think of what the ancient people who picked this document up and read it would have thought. Try to read it with fresh eyes. The gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Do you feel the cadence that Mark has going on here? He just moves along. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. John appeared. Okay, I thought this was about Jesus. Now we're under this guy named John. We're like four verses into it, and we got a different dude. John appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem, hyperbole, probably not everybody, but sounds good, were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Yummy. That's, by the way, that's what we're having for our tailgate party today. (laughs) Locust burgers. Actually, they're in the hot dogs, Jonathan. You'll love that. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, he just keeps this moving right along, doesn't he? In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up, Jesus came up out of the water immediately. There is that word that Mark loves so much. He saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. That's just 11 verses. It didn't start out with one of those, you know, mind-numbing genealogies. With all those names you can't pronounce. You just skip them over and you don't even know why it's there. It didn't start out with angels and mangers and, you know, silent nights. I mean, Mark just gets her going. Jesus is full grown. He's getting wet. We're moving on. Let's tell the story. Because I bought a short scroll and got her to get her done. This is like the redneck gospel, people. (laughs) You know, Mark tells us so much in this passage. I mean, I don't even have time. I don't even have time to get into it. But I want to start with a couple of things. He quotes Malachi and says, as it's written in the prophet Isaiah... 
before you get all concerned and, well, we can't trust the Gospels, we can't trust the Bible and freak out, he quotes Malachi and Isaiah and creates this mashup. Kind of like modern day music nowadays, <laughs> where rock and roll and pop music all meet hillbilly. And it's like, okay, that was weird. I was watching the Country Music Awards and they had a rapper to a country song. When I was in high school, those two hated one another. They wanted to kill each other, the country people and the rappers, and now they want to do music together. It's kind of what Mark's doing here. He takes Malachi and he takes Isaiah and he throws them together, and they both talk back to Exodus 23. And what Mark is doing is he's taking this view that was prominent in Jerusalem and Israel at that point in time, that we are sitting around waiting for Messiah to come. And he starts saying, he's here. You see, the very beginning of Mark, he is linking this story that he is about to tell you to the story you've already heard. He's linking it to the Old Testament, all the way back to Exodus 23, all the way back to Isaiah 40, all the way back to Malachi chapter 3. He's linking it back to those things. And if you're like me, when you read the quotes from the Old Testament, you just go, Moving on, I don't get it. Why is this in here? But in ancient Hebrew, they would have been like, oh, dude, cool, in Hebrew or Aramaic. I don't know what that sounds like. Ataish, you know, something like that. Mark's the man. Now, it's interesting because if you go back and you read Malachi chapter 3, and I've got the words for you on the screen. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I, who's speaking here? God, the Lord, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Before who? Me. Who's, who's the I? God. He's also the me. God, Yahweh. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming says the Lord, all capital letters, which means that is telling us it is the divine name, Yahweh. But the ancient people did not dare say it. So they put Adonai in there, which is Jewish for Lord, Hebrew for Lord, the Lord of hosts. And then if you go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the who? Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Who is coming? The Lord. God. Yahweh. There's a voice that's going to come and it's going to prepare the way of the Lord. And here Mark says, Quoting Isaiah, Malachi, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. He changes it a little bit. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Right off the bat, Mark is telling you who Jesus is. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord. This would not have been lost on the ancient Hebrews. They would have not sat there going, why are you quoting from Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40? I don't understand. This is hard. 
They would have gotten it without even a Bible in their hands. They would have understood this is the fulfillment of the new exodus. This is what we've been waiting for. This is God showing up. Right off the bat. No wonder he dies 15 chapters later. No wonder the people got mad at him. What would it take for you to be convinced that somebody was God in the flesh? Quote some Bible? Have some strange guy wearing camel hair? Eating locusts? You see, right off the bat, Mark is telling you, the king has come. The king is come. He is here now, Jesus. And he's also telling you something about the king's school. Do you know where the location of the king's school is? Wilderness. John is in the wilderness. And Judea and Jerusalem go to the wilderness to be baptized. Jesus goes to the wilderness to be baptized by John. And I don't really like the translation of the word wilderness because in Colorado, when we think wilderness, we think mountains and forests and streams and activities. And the Jewish people didn't think lush, beautiful mountains. They thought desert. They thought Death, dry thorns. Like being dropped off somewhere in the middle of Nevada. That's wilderness. That's where John is. That's where Jesus goes. And this is the school of the king. This is where you go learn the ways of the king. And it's an ancient story. Where did Israel go from After they left Egypt, the wilderness, how long did they live there? 40 years. Anybody want to live in the desert without technology, without air conditioning, without a bathroom in the wilderness, in the desert for 40 years? You see, the wilderness is the king's school because in the wilderness you learn that you will not survive without the king. In the wilderness you learn that every well runs dry, save the water of God. That every loaf of bread turns moldy, save the manna of God. And that's where the children of Israel for 40 years learned that lesson, that all water ran dry except the water we get from God. Some of you are in a wilderness. Some of you are in a wilderness experience. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you've gotten bad news in a relationship, in a marriage, about a kid. Maybe you've gotten a difficult thing going on in your health, and you have entered into wilderness, into the desert, thorns, thistles, pain, dry heat, breaking you down. If you squeezed a Hebrew, you know what you would get out? The Psalms. I've been reading the Psalms. My goal is to read through the Psalms once a month this year. Because I want to be a person that when I'm squeezed 
And somehow being a pastor, that seems to happen sometimes. Sometimes being a dad, that's what happens sometimes. Sometimes being married, that's what happens sometimes. Sometimes being human, that's what happens sometimes. Sometimes being an employee, that's what happens sometimes. You get squeezed. And what I want to come out of me is Psalms. And the wilderness is the squeezing. And some of you are experiencing squeezing. Some of you are experiencing wilderness. And one thing that you need to learn, the primary lesson in the school of the king, is that water that you find in this life will never suffice. Your marriage will never be good enough. Your spouse will never be hot enough. Your kids will never be smart enough. Your education will never be good enough. Your job will never pay enough. You will never drive a nice enough truck, car, tractor, combine. You will never, ever find what you need and are desiring so desperately in this life apart from God. Apart from the water of God. Apart from the manna of God. Sometimes when we get squeezed and we get back into church and we decide, oh, I'll just go back to church. That'll help me. That'll get me going in the right direction. That'll fix everything. And one of the things that you see in this baptism of John is that for the first time in history, you had to have somebody else dunk you underwater. You see, there was other religious rites. The Jews did it before they went and they worshiped God, before they ate, before they did things. They would wash themselves. Gentiles, before they went into the outer court, the Gentile court of the temple, they had to dunk themselves in water, but they did it to themselves. And John says, you ain't doing this yourself. This isn't taking a bath. This is being baptized. And they came out and John put them in water, and brought them back out. And one of the primary lessons that you learn in the wilderness is you can't save yourself. You see, some of you, the the wilderness is squeezing in. Life is making it hard and difficult and horrible things. And you decided, I'm going to go to church today. I'm going to go back. I'm going to get things straightened out and figured out. And what you're there for is you're trying to save yourself. You're getting religion. You're getting church. But you're not getting Jesus Christ. You're not turning to Christ. You're turning to religion. You're still about a self-salvation project. And the wilderness teaches you, you cannot save yourself. Jesus saves. The king saves. Every well will run dry except for the well of God. Every Loaf of bread will go moldy except for the manna of God. It's the king's school. Some of you are like, oh, I want to say amen so bad because I have gone through the wilderness. I have tasted and seen. I have found that it is truly only the well, the water of God, the bread, the manna of God that gives life. One final thing that we're going to see, even in this passage, but we're going to see it over. Oh, there's one cool thing that you got to see here really quickly. almost forgot. You would have, you would have been so upset if I skipped this. 
Some of you are thinking, really, something else? No, I'm serious. You would be so upset if I skipped this. Did you see when Jesus came up out of the water? You're like, what? some of you are going, Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. I mean, what's going on with the baptism? He's identifying with us. He's identifying with a sorry lot. <laughs> That's why he came in flesh. That's why he, he gave up all the glory of heaven and came as king, born in a manger. King as a lowly peasant boy. And he goes out to the wilderness and he is baptized by John and he comes up out of the water. And did you see the words? Did you hear the words? And the heavens were torn. It's the same word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when they talk about the parting of the Red Sea. It's the same word. The sea was torn open. The heavens are torn open. And there comes a dove from heaven. And there's a voice from heaven. And it says, this is my beloved son. And some of you are thinking, oh man, this makes for such an awesome Hallmark movie moment. Sappy, I mean, cue the violins. and God loves Jesus. And I just want to puke. All right? And, and guys, if sappy stuff bugs you about Christianity, it's because it's been hijacked. This is not a mamby-pamby religion. Jesus is the warrior shepherd. Do you know what's going on here? If you were a Hebrew and you knew your Bible well, you'd know exactly what is going on here. But since we're not Hebrews and we probably don't know our Bibles well enough, let me explain it to us. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25, we get a very similar thing that happens. Now, you're not going to see it right away, and that's why I'm here. I have to explain this to us. But if you have your Bible, seriously, open it to 2 Samuel 12, verses 25. It says, then David comforted... This is rated R, just so you know. So if your kids are... Some of you are fragile. I get that. This is rated R. I'm just going to read it, though, because it's in the Bible. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And we need a euphemism there. I think the NIV puts, he made love to her. Um, And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, loved him, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, because of the Lord. Huh? Huh? Now, if you have your Bible open to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 25, you will see at Jedidiah, there's probably an A or a 1 or a 2 or something that alerts you to something at the bottom of the page called a footnote. Does anybody have that in their Bible? And what does the footnote say? Beloved by the Lord. That's what Jedidiah means. So if you are named Jedidiah... Congratulations. That means beloved by Yahweh. Why would God tell the prophet Nathan to go give this name to Solomon? The son of who? The king of what? You know what God's doing here? He's stamping approval on Solomon. He's saying, this is the king. This is the next one. This is the one I like. This is the one I love. This is the beloved one of me. 
Remember how he picked David? Now he's picking Solomon. And guess what Mark does? He picks up this story from 2 Samuel chapter 12, one that we all skip over and go, I don't know what Jedediah means. This is just strange. Sounds like some hillbilly name. And we read Mark saying, this is my beloved son. Stamp it. Mint it. This is the chosen one. This is my guy. This is the king. It's not a hallmark moment. It's not sappy. It is royal and regal. And it is God saying, this is the guy from the word of God, from the mouth of God. This is the king. Do you think that's what Mark's trying to tell us here? This is the gospel of Jesus, like it was told in Isaiah, like it was told in Malachi. God is coming. He is the king. This is my guy. He is the king. Now, this word way, prepare the way of the Lord. We're going to encounter this word throughout this gospel. But do you know where this way leads throughout the book of Mark? I'm doing some work for you because all of you are going to go home and read the book of Mark over the next few days. And when you come across this word way, you're already going to know where it is you're going. You're already going to know where the way is headed. And when we think of kings and we think of queens and we think of the way, where do we think they're going? A throne, a palace. Where's Jesus going? Every single time the word way, or in your translation might be road or path, every single time this shows up, the way is to the cross. Every time. Every time. You see, when we read about a king, and we're good Americans, I mean, we got rid of the king. We didn't like the guy. He he taxed us with our representation on tea, for goodness sakes. I mean, we can't have taxed tea without representation. We got rid of the king. We gave him the boot. We got ourselves a president. President just is a fancy word for the guy who runs the meeting, by the way. We got ourselves a president. We got rid of kings because kings bring oppression. Kings bring slavery. How are you going to make a road straight in deserts? There's rock formations, there's valleys, there's hills, there's canyons. Well, you're going to get yourself a labor force. Are you going to pay them well? Nope. Why not? Because I'm the king. Well, I don't like that. Hey, you like to live? (laughs) I want a straight road. I want this valley filled in. I want this mountain. Where are we going to get the rock for the, mount, the valley? From that mountain. You're going to move that. You're going to make that flat. And you're going to straighten out me a nice road here. But Jesus doesn't come like that sort of king. An oppressive king. He comes as a servant king. How do we know that? Because the way that he always heads to is the cross. It's the king's cross. 
You know, if we lived in London and I said King's Cross, you'd think of a neighborhood, you'd think of a train station. If we lived in Sydney, Australia, and I said King's Cross, you would think of a neighborhood, you would think of a train station. If you're a Harry Potter fan, you know what King's Cross is. It's the place where Harry Potter went and caught the train to Hogwarts at King's Cross Station at nine and three quarters platform. Some of you are falling behind Western civilization literature. You need to get caught up. King's Cross is an oxymoron. King's Cross is a pariah. King's Cross is a paradox. Kings don't have crosses. Kings have thrones. But Jesus came as king and he went to the cross. He was a king that went to the cross, not to a throne. He went to the cross on the way to the throne. And in the process, he showed us a new type of kingship. In the process, he demonstrated for us servanthood. In the process, he demonstrated to us what looks like when you have a God who is able to identify with suffering. I love this poem. With this, we'll close. It's powerful words. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak, and no God has wounds, but thou alone. You see, Jesus Christ came to the wilderness. Jesus Christ came to the desert. Jesus Christ came to the cross. He died naked, beaten, bloodied, shamed, ridiculed, humiliated as a public spectacle. And my guess is most of us are going to die under hospice care in the privacy of our own home with our friends and family gathered around us. And the King of Kings did not die that way. The king of kings died a horrific death. It'd be like being beheaded by ISIS and put on the internet for all to see. And the king of all kings, the Lord of lords, came to the wilderness and did that. Why? Because it was the way to defeat sin and death and evil. It was the way to enter into relationship with you and I. It was the way for the king to emerge victorious. The warrior king. His way is the cross. For the next eight weeks, and this is so cool because this coincides with Lent. We're going to see a letter written by Mark to Christians who are suffering. We're going to see what it looks like to follow Jesus no matter what the cost because there are three responses when you see Jesus. Do you know what those three are? John Stott explains this so well in his book, Basic Christianity. You'll either hate him. In fact, there is no just laissez-faire seeing Jesus as a vitamin supplement kind of guy. There is only extreme reaction to Jesus when you really see who he is. I would not be surprised over the eight weeks, less and less of you come to church. 
At the same time, I wouldn't be surprised if then over the next eight weeks, more and more people come to church. It could go either way, gang. Because the reaction when you experience Jesus and who he really is is one of three things. Number one, you hate him and you want to kill him. Number two, you're scared of him and you want to keep him as far away as possible. Or number three, you will take up your cross and follow him no matter what. You will count the cost. The ball's in your court. It is your choice. We do not serve a God who will bend your arm and force you in. We might have preachers that try. But we serve a God who gives us a decision when confronted by the King of Kings. The servant king. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this great book. I love it. I'm excited about it. I pray that others will come to love it, will study it, will dive in, will read it. I pray it will become part of us. Why? Because we want Jesus. We want to be like him. We want to look like him. We want to live like him. And we would like to die as well as he did. Father, we pray that over the next eight weeks you would shape us by the words in this book. As we read them for ourselves, as we come together and hear teaching on it. And I pray during this Lent season we would understand the true meaning of Lent. That's not giving up chocolate or coffee, but it is about following a suffering servant king. May we follow you well. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Follow the king. Follow him to the cross. Amen.